0: Turn again if you're not there. To Acts chapter ten, as we noted before, we've noticed a lot, no, noticed. will get it out. Notice the last few Sundays the gospel has made its way, north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem. It's making its way all over this region. And its impact is becoming so widespread and so influential uh, throughout the first nine chapters that we start to get this sense that it's, it's all coming to a head. The buildup has been happening for these chapters. Folks have been, whether it's apostles or deacons or whoever, they've been going and spreading this gospel and sharing this good news of Christ. It's, it's all coming to this, this head of sorts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 Uh, that verse where Christ gave to his disciples that, uh, that commission really to preach the gospel to those in Jerusalem, that's been accomplished at this point. Men and women and families and even Jewish priests had accepted the gospel now. They've been added to the new covenant through the preaching of the gospel, through baptism. And beyond Jerusalem, the preaching of the gospel had occurred in Samaria as well. And so now, in order to continue following that command that Christ had given, the next step would be to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the preaching of the gospel to the Gentile nations, it it wouldn't happen naturally. It it wouldn't happen under human conditions or or any kind of apostolic plan or any kind of church planting evangelization strategy that the apostles came up with with in a coffee shop in fact and this is important each step of this of this command each step has been taken by the apostles by the spirit of God so it's all been explicitly directed by God so Christ's command is obeyed by these men through his spirit so God is essentially obeying His own command, which is the way it always is anyway when God gives a command. He gives us the grace to obey His commands. But the Spirit of God here is moving people to evangelize. The angel of the Lord is telling people what to do. Visions from heaven are coming down and given to explain God's purposes and intentions and commands. So in chapter 10, we find ourselves around the year A.D. 38, By now Christ has died and rose again. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jews and the Samaritans. Paul the persecutor has been saved in chapter 9 as we noted. He's off in Tarsus now. And now Luke records for us that the gospel is on the move to the Gentiles. And it's kind of strange because in chapter 9, Paul is the one who's commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But it would be Peter who would be the one to initially bring it to them. In Acts 2, he preached this famous sermon to that Jewish crowd. And in Acts chapter 10, he'll preach to a largely Gentile crowd. But this is an incredibly important subject that Luke is recording for us. that The salvation of the Gentiles. All of this goes beyond any kind of mere historical act. This is obviously to us as Gentiles incredibly important. So it shows us how this wall is broken down between Jew and Gentile. We as Gentiles were once, like Cornelius in this passage, we were once strangers to the covenants of promise. But this passage shows us how we are now included in covenant with God. And Peter would be that vessel used by God to show us how all of this went down. But why would it be Peter to initially bring the gospel to the Gentiles, opposed to Paul, who was again the one who was commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? As we noted a a chapter or two ago, Paul had been sought after by the Jews to be killed, so they did have to send him to to Tarsus. So the task had to fall to somebody. It also seems apparent that in Acts, that Peter was the one that was at the forefront of a lot of this. Obviously, Acts chapter two, as was mentioned, different. Run-ins with the Sanhedrin, he always seemed to be at this forefront, spearheading different events, and was generally in the front of the action. But it's interesting to me that Peter is the one who originally, he originally witnesses the conversion of the Gentiles, yet he later struggles with the tension between Jew and Gentile that Paul makes mention of in Galatians, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But anyway, Peter would be the one to proclaim the gospel initially to the Gentiles. The passage begins this morning by introducing us to an Italian man named Cornelius. The text says that he's a Roman centurion of the Italian cohort. So approximately 100 men would have been under his care. He was a man of leadership and importance. But beyond this, beyond any kind of worldly esteem that he probably would have had, Luke tells us that he's a a devout man. He feared God. He gave alms to the people. He was a man of prayer. He had a good reputation, likely as a result okay. of giving alms to the poor Jews. And although he was a devout man who prayed and worshipped the God of Israel, he was still a sinner. So, he knew the Jewish God. Luke makes that really clear. He knows the Jewish God. He prays to the Jewish God, but he very obviously didn't know the Jewish Savior. He didn't know the Messiah. Between chapters 9 and 10, there are four people who have had visions. You have Paul, Ananias, Ananias, Cornelius and Peter. And so right away in chapter 10, we're led into Cornelius' vision. Look down with me in verse, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have descended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So it's the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. It was a typical prayer time for the Jews. And Cornelius begins to see a vision. The angel of the Lord comes and strikes fear into Cornelius, which... Probably would be our response as well. We'd be terrified if an angel came to us in some sort of vision. And then the vision begins. But the vision, however he saw it, I mean, however he looked at it, however it came to him, he saw it clearly. It wasn't hazy. The meaning and the substance of the vision was clear. So much so that when the vision was over and the angel departed, Cornelius was able to immediately command his two servants and the soldier to go. And I love what the angel says about the alms giving and the prayers of Cornelius. Your prayers and your alms—they've ascended to God as a memorial. And how how great would it be to have that confirmation that that our prayers and and our giving and and the things that that through grace we've done for God have have been acknowledged by Him? But we should have that encouragement. We should have that. That knowledge, as far as prayer is concerned, we know that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Or, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you will reward you. Then, of course, as far as giving is concerned, each one must give as his heart has decided, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this is where Cornelius finds himself. This is exactly where he fits in. He's a cheerful giver of alms to the Jews and he was a man of prayer. So his religion wasn't some sort of external pharisaical show. No, it was an internal reality. He gave to the poor. He was a devout man of prayer and these things were acceptable and good in the eyes of God. So after this vision, Cornelius calls those two servants and his devout soldier and sent them to Joppa where Peter was staying at Simon the Tanner's house. So the men get to Joppa, and before they get there, Peter goes up to the rooftop to pray around lunchtime. And it's interesting because Luke records that Peter, he's he's hungry. Luke says, I'm hungry. Peter's hungry. And then the vision that God uses has to do with food. It's kind of like being at work during lunchtime. You're getting hungry, you know, you can think about this food, and somebody brings Chinese food in, or something just worsens it. But while the servants are preparing his lunch. For him, he falls into some sort of trance. Again, some sort of visionary state. Look at verses 19 to 16 with me. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. You Get an understanding of why Peter was so apprehensive to eating the animals when you understand the diet- dietary restrictions that they had, the, the purpose behind those dietary restrictions. Some have attributed th- these laws of God to maybe some sort of health concern for them that the, um, that the ability to refrigerate and all that hadn't come up. It, it wasn't because of that. The purpose for... Not eating these certain animals was holiness. The purpose for these dietary restrictions were holiness. God's law in Leviticus 11 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between clean and unclean and between the living creature so that that may be eaten and the living creature may not be eaten. So there was this there was this divide between what was clean and what was unclean and the purpose was holiness. So when Peter gets approached with this unclean food, the intention isn't to... to put some kind of legalistic standard on himself to say, oh no, I I never really have eaten that kind of stuff. I'm good. No. He didn't make up the law to eat these food. God did. And he didn't want to break God's law, which emphasized in his by no means. No, I'm I'm not going to do that. In no way am I going to touch that stuff. I've never done it. But God says to him to not call clean what God now calls clean. So three times this comes down. He sees the vision three times. It happens three times. We're not really sure, but what we do know is that at one time these animals were unclean for Jewish consumption and now God is saying, they're clean. Eat them. But there's a, there's a connection. I, I think Peter should have made this connection. Huh? It, it's speculative, admittedly. But the sheet was coming from an opening in heaven. Which in my mind would mean that it's coming from the presence of God or at least a pure place of heaven. So why didn't at least Peter think that way? It was clean enough to be in the presence of God, but it wasn't clean enough to be in the presence of Peter for some reason. But all of this would mean something. All of this would have, it would have purpose. And the purpose was soon realized by Peter and it goes far beyond the surface level of any kind of dietary restriction unclean food was now able to be eaten by the new covenant people of God. Yes, that's true. But also, the point of this vision was that the people who were once considered unclean were allowed to be part of the new covenant. The Gentiles. God is the one who originally instated the dietary laws. Therefore, He can be the one to revoke the the dietary laws. So at one point, the difference was sharp. This is what you do. This is what you can eat. This is what you can't eat. This is what you can't do. But here, though, God clearly indicates that these laws have no more bearing on the new covenant community. So he could now say with the Apostle Paul in First Timothy, for everything created by God is good. And nothing should be received, rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Peter's life was about to change forever. He could eat bacon now. Peter's response to the vision God gave him, though, is confusion. He's he's perplexed. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He had decades of distinction in his own life between what was clean and unclean. It was driven into him from day one. But God was telling him that it was no longer necessary. He should go ahead and eat what he used to not eat. Look down with me at verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them." And Peter went down to the men and said, "...I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming?" And they said, "...Cornelius the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say." So he invited them in to be his guests. Don't confuse the Spirit talking to him here and the vision. The vision has closed. It's ended. The Spirit now speaks to him. And he tells him that there were people who would be coming from Cornelius. Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. I might even say that at the beginning of the book of Acts in your own Bible. It's also been called the Acts of the Risen Lord, as we have there. But also, I think, could very well be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit spirit he's he's all over this book but in this chapter alone god uses three different ways to direct men to do as he will with cornelius it had been an angel of the lord who spoke to him then in peter's vision it was a voice from heaven and now it was the spirit of god directly commanding peter so all three were used and none of them should get confused with one another but all of them should be seen as the means of god used to direct his own will. So the command of the spirit to Peter was to go without hesitation with the men to Cornelius' house so that they could hear what Peter had to say. Peter invites the men in. They leave the following day with Cornelius' two servants, the soldier, some of the Jewish brothers, and Peter. When they make it to Caesarea, there was already a group of people waiting for him. So Cornelius is confident that his men are going to come back with Peter. He assembles a group of people, a family and friends together in order to hear what Peter has to say. And I love this because Cornelius is he's he's performing uh, maybe that's the wrong word. He is acting out the strategy of evangelism that many of us would like to use. He assembles his close friends in his family. He desired that that they would hear Peter's message. And we need to strive to do that, to be in our network that that the Lord has sovereignly placed us in with with people that we love and care about as family, but then also those that we work with, those who are close to us. This is what Cornelius has done. So the people were assembled and ready to hear the message, and Cornelius greets Peter. Look at verse 25 and 26. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. So Cornelius prostrates himself in front of Peter, very uncomfortably, obviously. To which Peter responds, get up. But look down in verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter, from the get-go, he said right out of the gate, you know that this isn't right, right? You know that this shouldn't be allowed. But God is showing him that he shouldn't call anybody unclean. He's starting to get it. There's no longer a need to be confused over the animals on the sheet. Not only were the sheet of animals able to be, eaten you now, but now the Gentiles were not to, be con- not to be considered unclean or unworthy of any kind of covenantal status with God. So if we are all able to be washed clean in the blood of Christ, then it doesn't matter what our heritage is. We are just as clean as one another if the blood that has washed us is from the same source. And Peter was starting to get that now. Although Peter seemed to understand the truth, this truth at this point, this truth of the Gospel that Gentiles were now allowed to be included in covenant with God, later on he would fail miserably. Turn over to Galatians 2. And we'll look at verses 11 to 14. And listen to this really strong language from the Apostle Paul. But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter's playing this game of politics between this Gentile and Jewish Christians and the result is disastrous in part because he ends up leading Barnabas and other Jewish Christians astray with him. He's an apostle and he's acting this way and he's leading people as an apostle down a hypocritical road. Paul opposes Peter to his face. And if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, Peter, you're the one who had the original vision about this stuff. But Peter sinned. He fell out of line with this gospel truth that's being showed to us in Galatians 2 here and in Acts 10. He showed distinction where God no longer did. But back in chapter 10, Cornelius receives Peter, relays the vision that he had, and Peter begins to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. It's clear, it's concise in many ways. It's the kind of gospel presentation we would like to give to an unsaved person. Verse 39 in Acts 10. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. They hung Him on a tree, Peter says. Deuteronomy says, Cursed by God is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. But who is the they? They hanged Him on the tree. Who is the they? It's the Jews. So He's standing in front of a group of Romans, right? Right? The Romans could have stopped the death of Christ, but Peter's not interested in taking any kind of pot shot against Romans. He knew who crucified Jesus, and he said it was the Jews. But that wasn't just the beginning. The gospel isn't just that Christ died. It goes further than that. He died on the tree, but God raised him on the third day. Jesus wasn't ailing or dazed or confused as a result of all the trauma that his body would have had to take while he was on the cross. He was alive and well, so much so that he was able to eat with those whom he had chosen, the disciples. And if you want an at least implicit reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, look at the response of the disciples and the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. Peter says that they ate together, and that God, or that Christ showed himself to them. If Jesus had died and stayed in the grave, then, what were they running around for all of these years even talking about? It wouldn't have made any sense. I mean, it had been years now since Christ had died. It would have made no sense at all. Or if the apostles hid his body or something like that, how could they have kept such a fantastic fable in, in such cohesion altogether among so many people? It would have been impossible. The reason the apostles could stay on mission is because Christ had resurrected from the dead, and as a result of his resurrection, they were now spiritually resurrected. So it was one thing for them as Jews to continue in covenant with God and become Christians, but it's another thing altogether for Gentiles to regularly come into covenant with God. And so you have to try to wrap your mind and get your mind into some kind of first century Jewish Christian mindset, and it's not easy to do because we're 21st century Gentile Christians. But their minds would have exploded after hearing that the gospel had made its way to even the Samaritans. And now that the gospel was coming to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were now going to be included in covenant with God as they had been for decades and years and millennia, but now others were being allowed in. So the people of God had always been circumcised. They had always been under the law. They had always observed the feasts and the festivals that came with being a Jew, but things were different now. The laws in those festivals and circumcision were Jew-specific. They were done away with. And the Gentiles were now to be included in covenant with them. This would have been completely out of the box, completely radical thinking, and it wouldn't have come upon them from their own thinking. It would be God's. I love verses 42 and 43. And he commanded us to preach the gospel to the people and to testify that he is the appointed one by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Receives the forgiveness of sins through His name. So no more bulls and goats and sheep had to shed their blood. Jesus had come and shed his blood. And all the prophets bore witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. This would be a new covenant reality. One of the prophets that Peter would very much have been uh, considering as he told them, this would have been Jeremiah, who in his chapter 31 of his prophecy states, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more this kind of promise would not be would not be given banking on the blood of bulls and goats no this kind of promise would be made by banking on the blood of Jesus who whose blood would be sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God whose blood the new covenant was actually in and whose blood could forgive iniquity and be so deep and rich that God would remember sin no more on account of his blood so the fact that we will be forgiven in the name of Jesus is a new covenant reality and peter And as Peter preaches this gospel message, the Holy Spirit falls down upon the listeners and they begin extolling God and preaching and, and, and speaking in tongues. The Jewish believers that were with Peter were amazed at this and heard the Gentiles speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter, not the Jewish Christians or the Gentiles there, but Peter says, can anybody withhold baptism from these people? So he baptizes them in the name of the Christ, which which follows the pattern that we saw in Acts 8 and Acts 9, where the eunuch and the Samaritans and Simon and Paul, they all get saved and they get baptized straight away. And then he stays with them for some days. Peter stays with these new Gentile converts for some days. And this is no small statement. Peter could now in good conscience, he could dwell with these people, he could share meals with them, share his time with them, and encourage them and they, him, in their mutual Savior. Everything had changed. The wall was now torn down as a result of the gospel. After spending those days with the new Gentile converts, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and explains what happened to the Jewish Christians and apostles in the first half of chapter 11. But he's met with opposition by the circumcision party. Men who believed it would be wrong to cross those Jewish Gentile lines. So they criticized Peter. But Peter lays it out clearly. Really exactly what happened in the order it happened. He talks about the vision he had. He talks about the vision that Cornelius had. He talks about the spirit directing him to go to Caesarea. And then he ends with this in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them. As he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they realized it as well. They had an apostolic witness to the fact that the Gentiles had now received salvation. And if there was any question about Peter's integrity, there were six other Jewish Christians who could have confirmed the same thing that were with him. So the gospel would spread so far from Jerusalem that it would eventually become apparent in the lives of, of people who are half a world away in Sun Prairie. And that's an incredible message. And I don't know hearts, only God does. But do you know this, gen, this Jesus? Have you trusted in His message of salvation? Have you repented of your sins and received forgiveness by looking to Him and to Him alone as your only hope and your treasure? I would urge you to do that. As Simeon said when he held Christ when he was a child, baby, he said this, He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And that would come true. He would be the light to the Gentiles. And to those of us Gentiles who are here who know Christ and we believe in Christ, this is all of grace. What He has done by tearing down the wall between Jew and Gentile is all of grace. Our response should be a continuance in the extolling of God as these initial Gentile believers had. Thankfulness for the bridging of the gap that He gave through His Gospel. Thanking Him for the sacrifice of His Son on our behalf, not just on behalf of the Jews. And I want to close with reading Ephesians two. If you want to, I know we've read a lot of scripture this morning, but turn over to Ephesians two. And I want to finish by reading verses eleven and following of that chapter. And this wraps it up for us, explains to us. Theologically, we've seen the historical account of how it happened. Theologically, what what does this all mean? The fact that God has bridged this gap, he's ripped down that wall. Verse 11 in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's thank Him now together for making us citizens of His covenant, members of the household of God that He Himself is the cornerstone of. Father, I thank You for Your grace in ripping down that wall that once separated us, that once made us strangers to You, strangers, the people of God, but now we are included. And what joins us together, what joins Jew and Gentile together is Christ. He's that chief cornerstone. He's done the work on our behalf to bring us together so that the two would become one, that we would be the one people of God. We would be the Israel of God. Father, I thank You for the salvation we've been given. We Want to continue extolling you through our lives, through the rest of this service. And Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come and worship you this morning through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen.